In a bit, we'll hear my conversation with Dave Turek, who oversees IBM's high-performance computing division, to learn more about all of that. But before we get to that, I thought it would be useful to give a quick definition and overview of supercomputers. So what is a supercomputer? Generally speaking, it's a computer that can perform at a level far beyond the average computer, you know, leap tall processes at a single bound. It can be a bit of a sliding classification. It's something we apply to an elite group of computers that operate at a level above and beyond what other machines are capable of at that time. And I thought it might be a good idea to explain what those are, since otherwise the only impression you'll get is that more flops equals more good somehow. So let's start with floating point numbers. In computing, you might deal with integers, and these are whole numbers with no fractions, like the number three. Three is a good number. It's an integer. But what about point three? Now we have a number that has a decimal in it. This is not an integer, but it can be a floating point number. Now, computers are really good at working with integers. They can calculate processes on integers whippity quick, but floating point numbers? Those can take a bit longer. And speed is a big deal in computing. You always want answers quickly. But the reason we call them floating point numbers is that you can move that decimal around. So that point three, well, we could represent that as three times 10 to the power of minus one. This is an example of scientific notation, something used in lots of disciplines to help represent very large or very small numbers without having to write in all those darn zeros. For example, if I wanted to write out the number 2 trillion, I would write the numeral 2 followed by 12 zeros. That's a lot of zeros. And honestly, if I wanted to do anything useful with that number, it would end up being a real hassle. But I could represent the same number as 2 times 10 to the 12th power. I wanted to give you guys a basic understanding of floating point operations because that's going to come into play in my discussion in this episode. So now that we've got that out of the way, we can move on. Dave Turek, Vice President of High Performance Computing and Cognitive Systems at IBM, spoke with me on Thursday, April 2nd, 2020, about high performance computing in general and how researchers are using it in an effort to research the coronavirus and COVID-19. And I should also add, we recorded this call over the internet, and so the quality is not the same as what we would usually have in a studio. You're going to hear some uh, effects because of the internet connection. You'll probably hear some extraneous noise, and I apologize for that. But in these extraordinary circumstances, this was the best we could manage in order to have this important conversation. And I want to thank Dave for his time and patience in setting this up, and I really appreciate it. So let's jump into it. Dave. Before we go into this incredible effort that we're seeing from research institutions using supercomputers to research the coronavirus and look at treatments for COVID-19, can you define in broad terms what is actually meant by high-performance computing? Well, I think uh, the way to think about high-performance computing is in terms of the nature of the problem, first of all, and then the kind of computing that's applied against it. So by nature of the problem, I mean that it's fundamentally infused with uh, mathematical representations of systems or problem types. And then from a computing perspective, uh, the kind of technology that puts an emphasis on floating point and very quick communications 
as a vehicle by which those problems are tackled. That just helps one distinguish between somebody saying, well, I can solve this problem on a phone, right? That's not what we're talking about here. The nature of the mathematics are complex and sometimes quite extreme, and the computing required to tackle those have similar kinds of capabilities to overcome that complexity. So now that we've kind of got a grasp on that, we're looking at at sort of a, a, a massive scale form of computing that does uh, very complicated processes very, very quickly. Can you talk a bit about the High Performance Computing Consortium? What is, what is that organization? How did that come about? The COVID-19 HPC Consortium came about roughly 10 days ago um, courtesy of a conversation between our director of research, Dario Gill, and people at the White House and subsequently the Department of Energy to see how we could apply high-performance computing or supercomputing to problems associated with uh, COVID-19. And um, quite quickly, the offers were taken up and Within a matter of a couple of days, we had a website up and running that gave the broad parameters of the resources that were available and how one could make submissions to it. And then with a passage of another couple of days, we brought in a number of additional partners as well um, to complement the capability that we initially were able to access uh, via IBM and the Department of Energy. Excellent. And and what are some of the uh, actual technologies that are being used in this process? We've mentioned supercomputers. Can you talk about any specific ones? And uh, what about things like uh, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, or what kind of various tech are coming together to tackle this, this, uh, this issue? The glib answer, of course, is everything, but let me be a little more specific. Uh, from the perspective of the supercomputers that are part of the consortium currently, Uh, They range from the Power9-based supercomputers that one finds at Oak Ridge and Lawrence Livermore to uh, x86-based systems that you might find in NASA, Argonne, and other places. Um, For the most part, most of these systems, but not all of them, use accelerators, um, and uh, and that really deals with some of the floating-point computations that are involved. And in some cases, the systems are, are absent. Um, uh, accelerators. So those are homogeneous systems. So that's a hardware characterization. Uh, When we begin to talk about machine learning, deep learning, and those things, that's a combination of software running in sync with particular hardware attributes. So from a deep learning, from a model training perspective, there's a premium placed on the availability of accelerators. So the Summit system at Oak Ridge, for example, is infused with about 25,000 accelerators, so it's terrific for helping people train models. But then as you begin to do inferencing and some of the other machine learning techniques, the emphasis um, exclusively on accelerators evolves a little bit, and you get to employ different kinds of architectural approaches to, uh, to look at actually inferencing problems. So it's a combination of software and hardware that's meant to be reasonably flexible. Now, one other thing I'll say, of course, in Oak Ridge, along with IBM, have been a pioneer in this, is that there's not a sharp dichotomy between AI writ large, which includes machine learning, natural language processing, deep learning, and so on, and HPC. 
In fact, the two domains have really come together in the last couple of years where problems now get decomposed in ways where maybe certain parts of the problems are tackled with classic HPC methodologies and other parts of the problems are not tackled with more current AI approaches. So it's this amalgamation of capabilities that are brought together under software control that creates the impact. Dave Turek mentioned a few things I feel I should unpack here. And let's start with talking about one of the supercomputers he alluded to, the Summit supercomputer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Now, this is just one of the supercomputers that are part of this consortium. And it is currently the reigning champ of supercomputers. And researchers are using it to do everything from understanding how molecular interactions in human cells could lead to much more complex traits uh, to exploring the physics of propulsion systems in an effort to make better, more efficient ones in the future. If computers were people, Summit would be that amazing overachiever you know who tackles any type of challenge with enthusiasm. Summit alone can achieve a peak performance of 200 petaflops. That's 200,000 trillion calculations of floating point operations per second. Dave also mentioned inference problems, and that gets down to looking at data and inferring probabilities based on the data you've gathered. And building probabilistic tables is an important part of science, and when done properly, can really speed things up. You look at which options appear to be the most promising, and you focus on those. And you might discard all the ones that have a very low probability of being helpful, or at least put them to the side. If you exhaust all the most promising options without a result, then you can revisit some of the other ones. But really, it's a great way to eliminate options, giving you the ability to focus on the best chance for success. Let's get back to the interview. So with COVID-19 in particular, what are the ways, some of the ways that researchers are leveraging these technologies to specifically look at that crisis? So I think the the first way to think of it is to just take a second and inform your listeners about the modern ways in which chemistry, biology, and biochemistry are done. Mm-hmm. Because I think many lay people have this image from their high school or college days of beakers and pipettes and things like that, sort of the what I would characterize the representation of science in the analog world, what you touch and feel and deal with every day. But what's transpired over the last several decades is this movement to progressively infuse science and and the scientific method with more and more computational capability. And what that comes down to in the case of COVID-19 is one begins to take first principles kinds of theories of the way atoms are structured, molecules are structured and the way atoms behave and how they interact with one another, represent that in mathematical form and use the computers to explore the behavior from a first principles perspective before you ever get to a physical laboratory. So what that nets out to is, you can now use the power of computing to assess thousands and hundreds of thousands of molecules in terms of their potential impact on the virus and explore the behavior and the, and the constraints and the amplifications of combinations of molecules digitally before you ever have to go to the laboratory to try to recreate the results you've seen digitally in the analog world. And that's been a tremendous speed up in terms of time. You know, pharmaceutical companies today, they may have at their disposal billions of molecules that they might want to look at for a particular pharmaceutical impact. 
And sorting through that is just gigantic task. And the ability to have computers to come in and say, look, I know you're looking at 8,000 molecules here, which is what researchers at Oak Ridge did, but I can cut that down to 77 just by using digital approaches and simulation and computation so that you don't have to worry about trying to analyze all 8,000 in a laboratory. You can focus on 77. So that's the first big step of what's happening here. No, that's amazing because just the idea of of cutting out that step in the wet lab where you're having to physically uh, uh, analyze reactions or maybe not even analyze, you're just detecting to see if one is happening, uh, cutting that down so that you can really focus on the best uh, po- potential solutions is phenomenal. Can we talk a little bit about what is it about these simulations that uh, make them so challenging that high-performance computing is suitable for tackling that kind of thing? Well, I think that um, one of the principal methodologies that people use in these investigations is molecular dynamics. Mm -hmm. And uh, what that entails is, first of all, a characterization of a molecule in atoms, and, and then the application of forces at the atomic level in terms of how they interact with one another. And so those forces are complicated. The time steps are extraordinarily small. And yet you want to observe how these things interact, not only at, let's say, 10 to the minus 15 seconds, but you actually like to see how they behave in, in, in real seconds, in minutes, in hours, and days. And those time scales just create a tremendous number of computational steps that one has to pursue in the concert of looking at these atomic forces that are operating on the target molecules and atoms and how they interact with one another. So the mathematics is stunningly complex. The timeframes are just so extreme that it requires tremendous amount of compute power just to simulate a handful of seconds. And by virtue of having gigantic supercomputers operate on this, we can actually do this in a reasonable way, in a reasonable amount of wall clock time. So let's consider what researchers are doing in this case. A virus consists of at least two parts. You've got a nucleic acid genome, which contains the material the virus needs to make copies of itself once it is in a proper host cell. And then you've got a protein capsid, or shell, that contains the nucleic acid until the virus can attach itself and inject that material into the aforementioned host cell. Together, this is called the nucleocapsid. Many animal viruses also have a lipid envelope, and that is a membrane that has lots of stuff in it, including virally programmed proteins in it. One of the purposes of those proteins is to bind with compatible receptors on host cells. So you can kind of think of it as a virus has a special kind of plug, and it's looking for cells that have a compatible outlet. And when it finds such a cell, it can plug in, connect that cell, injecting the nucleic acid of the virus into the host cell. And then the code in that nucleic acid hijacks the host cell, turns it into a virus replication engine. Scientists need to know how specific molecules will interact with each other, the virus, host cells, and more. These interactions happen at such a small scale and in such minute slices or steps of time that it is difficult to describe, and this is where the speed of high-performance computing really comes into play. First, breaking down elements of time gets mind-boggling. We tend to think of it in terms of, as Dave says, wall clock time. 
you know, seconds, minutes, and hours. We can get our minds wrapped around shorter slices of time because counting out a second might sound like one Mississippi. So we can definitely think of just one, right? That's shorter. But eventually we hit a point where it's hard for us to really understand time at very tiny slices. We can always find a way to slice time into smaller increments. We can continue to make smaller and smaller slices of time. For example, there's a femtosecond. A femtosecond is just one quadrillionth of a second. That's 10 to the power of minus 15. So imagine simulating the interactions between molecules in a series of these unimaginably short slices of time, up to the point that collectively they amount to enough that it would reach our perceptible world. So we're talking about a quadrillion slices of time to make up just one second here. And there could be numerous important interactions on the molecular level within that short time frame. And this is why supercomputers are necessary for this sort of work. It allows for a precision that we otherwise would find impossible. And again, it tells us if a potential molecule shows promise in our efforts or if it's likely to be a bust. Back to my conversation with Dave Turek, Vice President of High Performance Computing and Cognitive Systems at IBM. With supercomputers being able to tackle this kind of thing through their various methodologies, this, I would imagine, would be something that if we were to use a classic computer, it could take thousands of years. Is that accurate? Yes. Um, and, and in some sense, it wouldn't even be possible mm -hmm. because modern supercomputers uh, which I'll declare is roughly the era from 1990 forward, um, really are systems that are built on this concept of parallel processing, parallel computing, which in turn revolves around this idea that you can decompose a problem into its component elements. And if you have enough elemental computing entities in your supercomputer, you can assign each one of those little problem parts to a different computing element and orchestrate the execution of the computation against that and, and just radically reduce the amount of time required from co for computation. So let me put it this way. Um, on a standard laptop computer, for example, you're going to be running principally to some order of magnitude, um, a serial kind of process. You know, you're going to execute and solve problem A, which is followed by B, C, D, and so on. In the parallel world, you'll take A, B, C, and D, and you'll all run them at the same time, but on different parts of the supercomputer. And then through software orchestration, you'll sort of coalesce all those outputs and render a conclusion based on the, the sets of calculations you've run. Now, I gave an example of maybe a decomposition to four pieces, but what we really may be talking about, maybe 100,000 or, or a million or 10 million pieces. And, uh, and it's very complicated to try to orchestrate all that activity. So a laptop computer doesn't have the ability to do that. And that's why when people think about supercomputers, they sort of render it in terms of, well, this is the equivalent of what 10 million laptops could do or 100 million laptops could do. But remember, laptops are standalone entities. Mm -hmm. In the supercomputer world, all of those computing entities have to be managed and there has to be brain power to orchestrate the way they tackle the problem. And the supercomputers are really architected to, to handle that. Right. So this is, this is a specific purpose-built approach to that problem, whereas we've seen things like grid computing as sort of an ad hoc approach to that problem, where 
it tries to do a similar thing, but obviously at uh, exponentially lower levels of processing capability. And when we're talking about things like floating point operations, just for you guys out there, you listeners out there, you know, you might have seen a graphics processing unit that talks about things in the teraflop range, which you're talking about, you know, a million, million floating point operations per second. We're looking at petaflop ranges here, a thousand million, million floating point operations per second, as I understand it, which that's incredible. Uh, It's again, for someone like me, maybe it's just my limited imagination. I have real trouble (laughs) putting this into a context that I can get my hands around. Uh, But it's, it's uh, an incredibly fascinating thing. And this is not, this isn't like it's unprecedented. We've seen Researchers, doctors, scientists use supercomputers to research stuff like vaccines for for the flu before as well, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, when H1N1 came out, I guess it was around 2009, uh, IBM's computational biology group actually began to model the evolutionary trajectory of the virus. Because if you think about viruses and I don't want people to be confused that I'm equating flu to corona. Mm -hmm. But if you think about flu for a second, uh, the virus is not a static thing. It will evolve over the course of time. And that's why you have a different kind of flu shot every year. It's uh, it's an effort to try to uh, create a vaccine to intercept uh, the next generation of where where this particular virus has evolved to. And the way you do that, the way the industry does that is they use computational techniques to kind of predict the evolutionary pathway and they build their vaccine to target where the where the virus will be in three months as opposed to where it is today. Because a lead time to, to design and build a virus is, you know, takes a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. You can't wait for the virus to hit. The same kind of logic will be applied to the investigation of COVID-19. Um you know, depending, of course, on the discovery of science in terms of the extent and how it'll evolve over the course of time. But the expectation is it will evolve. And so you'll use computational techniques to begin to fathom that infinite possible ways in which it could evolve and choose those that are most likely to represent uh, where the virus will be in a handful of months. And you'll use that to inform the way you design your vaccine to intercept it. So we're talking about forming probabilistic models to really determine where are the most likely pathways that this virus might take, evolutionarily speaking. It's very similar to how I, from a concept level, it's very similar to how I would look at something uh, like uh, IBM Watson when, you know, everyone knows about it competing on Jeopardy. It had uh, probabilistic approaches to which answers would be the most accurate, and only if it reached a certain threshold of certainty would it would it buzz in. But of course, obviously, now we're talking about a much more complex thing and much higher stakes. But it's that same sort of approach of where can we predict where this is going? How can we get ahead of it? Then how can we create you know a dead version or an inert version, I should say, of the virus to make a vaccine. And then you have the other challenges that come in vaccinations, which is just, you know, the 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 manufacturing process, distribution, that sort of thing. But this shortening the pathway to this part to me seems like it is uh it is absolutely crucial. And it's also one of the areas where I would think that you would see the longest delay. So seeing the the application of supercomputers is really inspiring to me. 
Uh, are there other ways that IBM is contributing to various uh, efforts to either track or fight COVID-19? Yes. In, in fact, just last Friday, uh, IBM released for free uh, on our website a, um, um, an artificial intelligence package that speculatively designs new molecules for the treatment of COVID-19. So let me back up for a second. If you think about what's been going on at Oak Ridge with Jeremy Smith's effort to look at 8,000 compounds and whittle that down to 77 for further investigation as potential therapies to treat COVID-19, well, those 8,000 existed. Somebody had already built them. Question is, are there new kinds of molecules that could be designed that don't exist today that could be used to treat COVID-19? So the artificial intelligence package that IBM put out on Friday lets you do that. And it's free and it's open to anyone. So anybody can get on the website and begin playing with it. And maybe you kick up a new molecule, which ends up as input to the next generation of the work that goes on within the COVID high-performance computing consortium. So there's innovation at both ends of the process, the the design and designation of new molecules, and then, of course, the assessment of existing molecules, including the newly designed or invented ones, to assess efficacy against against the COVID-19 virus. Um, And these ideas need to work in concert, and they will. Science is all about us discovering the rules of the universe. That sounds grandiose, but it is true. The rules exist with or without us. Science is our process for figuring out what those rules are, and sometimes leads to us learning how to take advantage of those rules, or to avoid things that might cause us harm, or pushing back the boundaries of what we see as our limitations. Understanding those rules, we can build complicated virtual environments that let us play with creating new molecules. The rules are the foundation of these virtual environments. The rules include which atoms can bond with which other atoms and under what circumstances. So we start off with what is physically possible based on how we understand chemistry. Molecules that could exist can be fair game. Molecules that cannot exist are a no-go because it doesn't really help the end cause if the solution you propose is physically impossible, after all. As Dave mentioned, IBM opened up this artificial intelligence tool to anyone who wants to work with it, so chemists, doctors, researchers, and others can contribute to the efforts. To do so, you can visit the website. Here's the address, www.research.ibm.com COVID-19 slash deep dash search. I'm also curious about other applications of these supercomputers. Obviously, right now, we're very much focused on the COVID-19 crisis, as we should be. But once we're through this crisis, it's not like the work stops for high-performance computing. There are so many different applications. Can you talk about some of the other purposes that scientists and researchers are putting these remarkable machines to? Oh, absolutely. And, and I would say the first thing is that you cannot, no person on the planet can go through a day without touching a product, a service, or something that's not been impacted by the application of supercomputing somewhere in the world. They're used to design uh, automobiles for uh, aerodynamics and fuel efficiency. They're used to design the kinds of batteries that the electric car companies are putting in their cars. 
They used to design airfoils and airplanes, uh, new drugs that we've talked about. They, they're used for fraud detection. So when you get a call on your telephone where your credit card company says, by the way, we've signaled a potential misuse of your car card, that's probably been done by a supercomputer. Now, smaller than the kinds that we're talking about here at a place like Oak Ridge or Lawrence Livermore or Argonne, but of the same sort of family, this notion of parallel computing, floating point analysis, incorporation of AI, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's extraordinarily widespread. I think one of the really tremendously promising areas for supercomputing, and by the way, people have been poking at this for, for, for quite some time, is the area of material science. Materials are used in everything. That's sort of um, a, a not very profound statement to make. <laughs> but, but the nature materials are quite exotic. And when you look, for example, at, at designing new batteries, lithium ion batteries and, and so on, and you say, well, how do I get more efficiency out of batteries to, to drive electric cars? Well, that's when new materials start to come into play where you, you start uh, building battery elements out of new combination of alloys that no one previously explored or anticipated, especially in the context of the use to which the battery will, will apply them. So the opportunity to explore worlds that don't really exist yet digitally without having to incur the expense of creating them in the analog sense, you know, you're not building laboratories and things like that. And in some cases, of course, the nature of what you're doing might even be viewed as dangerous. Uh, the opportunity to use supercomputing to explore those worlds, explore those opportunities, do it safely, do it cost effectively, becomes a tremendous boon to the scientific method generally. And I would say for the last 25 years or so, when scientists talk about the scientific method, you know, hypothesis, experimentation, data, and all those things, I think computation is now factored in as a key element to the whole scientific process. It's the ability to see things, to explore things that you cannot get to with other kinds of scientific instruments and tools. Yeah, I... I I have been covering technology for several years now, and I've talked a lot about some of the early scientists, physicists who who kind of laid the groundwork for the technologies we depend upon today. You know, they they learned about the science that the technology is a physical implementation of and allows us to take advantage of that science. And in many cases, you're talking about people who came across something by accident. You know, it was just fortuitous that they observed something and that someone else was able to figure out how to make use of that. So having a way to virtualize that and speed up that process exponentially, to me, what that tells me is that we get a chance to enjoy the benefits of that science on a time scale that is would previously have been impossible. You might have been talking about something where you know what, maybe that discovery could be something that impacts my great-grandchild. But now we're talking about things that could potentially have a physical implementation within a decade or less in some cases, and in cases where we're actively researching a vaccine much, much closer to now, which is, again, incredible. When we're talking about computational power, it's not just the speed at which we're solving problems, it's the speed at which we're able to take advantage of those solutions. So I, I, I'm really, well, you can tell I'm really jazzed about this conversation. I get excited about the weirdest things. Well, this isn't weird. This is commonplace. And, and, you know, one of the things that's coming as a result of this is 
is there's a real explosion in growth of knowledge. So uh, I'll go back to material science. If you look at material science 10 or 15 years ago, and uh, you said, well, how many papers, scientific papers are published annually in material science? Um, and I said, guess what that number is? What would you guess that number to be? Oh, um, I'm going to go with, I'm, no matter what number I say, it's going to be wrong. I'm going to say 100,000. So that's actually an ambitious guess. Okay. So, so 10 or 15 years ago, the number was 10,000. Yeah. But last year, the number was 500,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> now... Now, the, the point is, knowledge is growing at a rate faster than humans are able to consume the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because now these are refereed papers. So they're all serious and people have looked at them and, you know, it's, it's contributed to the, to the corpus of knowledge that, that are accessible to human that everybody agrees is, is true. And you think about 500,000 papers, that's 500,000 papers a year. So how do you become, be, maintain currency in the field? And the answer is you can't. So now you look at the application of supercomputing to help you grasp, contain, and really model the knowledge that's available as, as well as generate new knowledge. So these ideas embodied in things like Watson coupled to supercomputing let you begin to explore this vast array of scientific knowledge in a very coordinated and orchestrated kind of fashion to gain insight that you have no way of getting as as the conventional way that, you know, people looked at, at acquiring knowledge 15 or 20 years ago. You don't go to the library and read 500,000 papers, right? right? But on the other hand, you can use systems equipped with uh, infrastructure based on tools like Watson, and you can begin to fathom those 500,000 papers in the blink of an eye and get an understanding of relationships that would have never occurred to you naturally uh, and, and to begin to give you ideas of new directions to pursue. So my reference, for example, to the um, presentation on Friday of that um, software package from IBM using AI to speculatively help you look at new molecules for COVID-19 are based on principles like these. Harvesting human knowledge at scale that a human can't handle and coming up with novel kinds of interpretations of the knowledge that gives rise to potentially radically new and terrifically important innovations. So this is something that people really, I don't think, have digested fully yet in terms of supercomputing, which they've always viewed as a means by which you do standard scientific calculations faster. Now we're looking at this coalescence of approach that spans knowledge and data and computation and looking at it all together to give rise to insights that previously could never have been imagined. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's been great to see the journey of where we were going from a point where we were gathering enormous amounts of data, you know, the early era of big data, getting a better understanding of how to manage and analyze that data to contextualize it. And now we're reaching a point or we're at a point where we have these incredible systems that are capable of of doing that uh, on a human level, if that human level were you know, every human on the planet able to think about this stuff simultaneously and share that information in a hive mind. So to me, again, this is super exciting stuff. And uh, I'm really, I'm really optimistic about this. I think that this is uh, the, an approach that is going to lead to some really actionable 
solutions. And uh, ultimately, what that tells me is that, you know, we can talk about the tech and it's super cool and how uh, advanced it is and how how complex it is and the sort of problems it can it can tackle from a very conceptual level. But to me, the really inspiring thing is seeing the actual impact on the world when we see these solutions enacted in ways that make uh, a direct improvement in people's lives. To me, there's no greater story of the potential and power of technology than that. I, I would agree. And I think that we're at a stage now where the application of this technology is becoming progressively more and more ubiquitous and accessible. And by accessible, I mean with the advent of artificial intelligence over the last few years from a commercial perspective, it's now accessible to normal humans, right? You don't have to have exotic experience in, uh, in computer science uh, or exotic experience in mathematics. You can go on a system like the IBM uh, molecular forecasting system and with a little bit of knowledge of chemistry, not computers, but chemistry, you can begin to explore possibilities that would have been previously inaccessible to you. So it's a democratization of supercomputing that's happening as well as, as these AI methodologies are incorporated that now dramatically expands the utility of the technology by virtue of making it accessible to almost everyone. Fantastic. And this is this is a thread that when I've spoken with people at IBM, it has come up a time and time again, this not just the development of technology and not just the implementation of it, but the, as you say, the democratization, the uh, making it available for people, whether it's call for code, where coders are building solutions to big problems, and they're getting support through access to IBM tools, or something along these lines, or we talk about... Uh, not that we should talk about this because I'll go down a rabbit hole, but uh, IBM developing quantum computers and opening that up for people to develop uh, for that so that they can test that out. Sort of the next generation of truly remarkable parallel processing. If you want to talk about that, you go down that quantum road. And to me, that's one of those really defining features that makes me happy to have these kind of conversations because I know that my listeners if they want to, they can actually go out and take advantage of these tools themselves. They just have to take the step to learn and to go and be part of it. And it's not just a a, a supercomputer that's locked away in a lab or deep underground or some sort of Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide, deep thought computer. It's something that's actually accessible to people. You just have to take some pretty simple steps to do it. That's right. And our strategy is to make more and more of these innovative technologies available on the web and free to people so that they can play with it, but by virtue of playing with it, inform us about the direction some of our innovation should take as well. Um, We've done this in chemistry. We've done this in biology. We've done it in quantum. I think it's, um, it's a very successful paradigm to produce things that are really useful compared to the old style way of, um, you know, doing it locked away in a tower someplace and then just revealing your innovation to the world, hoping for the best. Better to have the world along from the very beginning. Yeah, I think silos are best left on farms. I also agree with that. Dave, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I wish you and your team all the best. 
as you continue to put high performance computing to uses that I'm sure I can't even imagine right now. I can't wait to see what's next. Me too. And you'll be seeing things coming out of the consortium very quickly for people uh, who are following it. Uh, please go to the website, the COVID-19 HPC Consortium. And uh, beginning next week, we'll start to publish the science that's actually being done on the computers. It is encouraging to see IBM take an open, inclusive approach toward technological solutions. The company has produced lots of complex technologies that have enormous power. But IBM also recognizes that innovation and solutions can come from any direction. And making these resources easily available speeds up the process of arriving at those solutions. In this particular instance, we're talking about a dangerous virus and the disease it causes. But the underlying philosophy of inclusion extends beyond that. It was a pleasure to speak with Dave Turek about high-performance computing and its role in the response to the COVID-19 crisis. I have no doubt that the complicated simulations will allow for much more rapid development, which in turn will mean a faster path to effective treatments for COVID-19. That's something I won't lose sight of. As I said to Dave, this technology is really cool, but not as cool as the results we'll see from that tax application. That's all for today's episode. Before I sign off, I want to remind you guys of the Call for Code Global Challenge. This is the big coding slash hacking challenge IBM sponsors every year. It always takes aim at a really big problem, and it invites people to submit ideas for applications that could address these problems in some way. And those applications can tap into the incredible resources of IBM, including amazing IBM technologies. This year, there are two tracks for the global challenge. The first of the two tracks specifically focuses on COVID-19. If you have an idea for an application that could help address the crisis, then you need to submit it by April 27th for consideration. By May 5th, they will pick the top three COVID-19 solutions. And then by May 15th, they start initial deployment of those solutions. If you want to submit for the broader topic of climate change, then IBM is accepting those applications until July 31st. Now, to be clear, they will be accepting COVID-19 solutions throughout the entirety of the global challenge, but as I said, the timeline for a consideration for those three spots has to be submitted by April 27th. In October, the winners of the 2020 Call for Code Global Challenge will be announced at an award ceremony. So if you have ideas, if you're looking for like-minded people to work on real-world solutions that can really change things for people, I highly recommend you look at the Call for Code Challenge. You can find out more at ibm.biz slash callforcode. In the next Smart Talks on Tech Stuff, I'll sit down with Grace Sue, VP of Education at IBM, and Kristen Wisniewski, CIO of Design at IBM, to talk about how the company's technologies are powering remote learning and remote work efforts. I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 